I'm going to give a quick recap for those of you who weren't here this morning. The subject is revival. I'm taking it from Isaiah chapter 61. For those of you who were here this morning, the recap will also just bring back and refresh the things that we did go through. I'm not giving detail because I want to cut some new ground this evening. The question came, and that was, what is revival and why do we need it? So let me just start there in the recap. What is revival and why do we need it? I said revival isn't a name for a special rally or a period of church growth or even show and tell sort of hype sessions. That isn't what revival is. Revival can be defined as a sudden and sovereign move of God. It comes suddenly and it's under the total control of the Holy Spirit. In fact, when men try and fiddle with it, it stops. It's uncontrollable other than it's under the total control of the sovereign God. It's a visitation from God. You'll hear again uh, in one of the videos I'm going to play you the voice of Duncan Campbell from the Hebrides. And he often uses the word when God stepped down. Because that epitomizes revival. God steps into his church and says, step aside, I'm here. It's acute and it's sustained. It doesn't go away easily unless we fiddle with it. When revival comes, it's not just one Sunday. It's day after day and week after week and month after month of God visiting his church. And through his church, the society. It's a countrywide sometimes. And if not a countrywide, a province-wide or an area-wide visitation of God, the presence of God is tangible in whole areas. It's a community saturated with God. It's a dramatic return to the church of the book of Acts chapter 2. It's both reformation, restoration, and renewal. And God comes and he restores and he reforms and he revives his church. And through his church, he reaches the nation. Through the nation, he reaches the world. We spoke, uh, I mentioned briefly, Azusa Street this morning, which is familiar to all Pentecostals. What you might not know is the impact that that Azusa Street revival had on the whole world. People went all over the world, changing things, starting things, setting things up. Ministries were born for years and years and decades and decades after that. Whole denominations came into being. In fact, the great Pentecostal denominations have their origin back in the revival of one small church, and it was really small, and it touched the world. The second question is, why do we need revival? And my answer this morning was, well, just look around. Look at the thick darkness that covers the earth. And look at the darkness within the church itself. I made the point this morning that the church generally around the world has lost its way. It's lost its focus on Jesus. What I didn't mention this morning, here's some uh, new information for you. If you'd like to Google it, it's called The State of Theology Today. It's a website, and it's a result of polling 3,000 American evangelical Christians. The qualification was that they're evangelical Christians. That's how they define themselves. 3,000 Americans were polled, and the results are shocking, shocking. 
One of the questions was uh, concerning, uh, do you believe that Jesus was the, 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 the greatest creation of God? God's greatest creation. And nearly 50% said, yes, we agree with that statement. And the whole of the Bible says, God is not a created being. He is God the Son Himself. Through Him all things were created. Nothing was created other than through Him. The church has lost its way. When they asked the question about, is Jesus the only way to be saved? Nearly half disagreed with that statement. Disagreed with that statement. You know, the, the data's in, the facts are in. Um, Sam mentioned that I founded the South African Theological Seminary 20 years ago. And right now I'm um, helping them put together a similar sort of survey. We're surveying about 1,200 Christians in South Africa. The data is in. I'll start analyzing it next week so that we can have some information to show and say, do you think the church is Jesus-centered? Think again. The church has lost its way. And the only thing that will bring the church back to the centrality of Jesus is revival. And the only thing that will save this nation and the nations of the world is a revived church. So it is a hugely important thing. When we talk about revival, it's not a nicety. It's not something which, oh, that's nice, you know, we've heard about those things in the past. It's an absolute necessity. Oh, we need to be crying out day and night. We need to be saying, oh, God, Step down. Put on your breastplate. Hold your sword. Stride into your church. Say to us again, step aside, Sonny. I'm here. Because we need it. We need it desperately, desperately, desperately. I spoke about how at the village church some seven years ago we were given a number of prophetic words that God was going to be sending that revival and we were going to be part of it. I fervently and passionately believe that it's knocking on the door. I mentioned that we have a group of about 20 people. Carlos and his wife are part of that 20, as am I. And we've been praying every Monday night for seven years. And we are committed to continue to pray. But just because we are praying for revival doesn't mean that we are now asleep just waiting for revival. In fact, if you believe that revival is imminent, even more reason to press into the things of God, to study His Word, to reach out, to to save souls, to build His church. We can't just wait, but we can't bring on revival. While we wait and expect God to move, we do what we can do, what Jesus has instructed us to do, build His church. Extend his kingdom. Give glory and honor to his name. I spoke this morning about the quasi-Sabantu revival and gave you a little taste of what happened there. And this evening I want to deal with another revival. A revival that happened in 1949 and lasted for three years, non-stop. Three years. A revival that is still touching the world. That people went from that revival to the four corners of the earth, yet so few people have ever heard about the revival in the Hebrides. Lewis is a city in the islands of the Outer Hebrides, islands off the west and the northern coast of Scotland, right up where it gets real cold. If you see video clips of it, it's a fairly barren place, but it's a place where they've had revivals before. And in 1949, God stepped down. 
And I want to describe that, draw some lessons from it tonight, and then I want to repeat the three things that I believe are in the heart of God, the three questions which the Holy Spirit is posing to us. Those of you here this morning, I posed them to you and said, please think about it, pray about it, because tonight I'm going to restate them again. And then ask you to respond in some way to that. You know, you cannot hear a challenge and say, yeah, that's nice. I do believe that's from God. I don't think I'll respond. No, you have to. It doesn't have to be a positive response. But we've got to say, yes, Lord, or no, Lord. We've got to say, I don't believe that's God, or I do. And if I do, I need to act. There's a little place called Humansdorp outside Port Elizabeth. Do you know Humansdorp? There's some nods. Okay, so I was a Methodist preacher on note in those days. That meant I had to go around to these tiny little places and preach sermons and then people would evaluate me and mark me on a score chart. And I went out to the church in Humansdorp and I preached on hell. I don't do that very often now, I preached on hell. It was a tiny little congregation and at the door afterwards was the, the, the chief deacon shaking hands. And he shook my hand and he said, very, very nice message, pastor. Very, very nice message. My son, I've just preached on hell. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) How can that be a very, very nice message? You know, I expect you to say rubbish. Well, I expect you to say amen, but you can't say it's a nice message. If you believe this is from the Word of God, then respond to it. All right, I want to play you a clip. And it's about the revival in Lewis, in the Outer Hebrides. The key character is a man called Duncan Campbell. You will have heard some of these statements this morning because they take a lot of these different video clips from the same source. The source is an hour and 20 minutes lecture that he gave, not that many years ago. He's an old man. I'm not even sure if he's still alive, but if he is, he's in his late 80s. And they've taken bits of it. But let me play it for you so you can hear his voice again and the passion of that voice as he thinks and remembers what God did. He was right there. He was the man. When he said, and somebody came and said to the preacher, well, he's the preacher, somebody said to. He's just being modest. He's like, Paul, I know a man, you know. And then I'll make sense of it for you because then I will take you through the detail of what's happened. There are many accounts of the Lewis revival. I've had to read about ten of them to put them together to make sense. You know, things grow fur after a while. Uh, stories expand. But when you put them together, you come back to the clear, raw message that he told of that revival. So if we could roll that, and then I'll take it from there. Remember once, within 24 hours addressing eight crowded churches, There was a dance in progress that night, and while this young man was praying in the aisle, the power of God moved into that dance, and the young people, over a hundred of them, fled from the dance as those being from a plague, and they made for the church. I endeavor to get up into the pulpit. I found the way blocked. 
was young people who had been at the dance. When I went into the pulpit, I found a young woman, a graduate of Aberdeen University, who was at the dance. And she's lying on the floor of the pulpit crying, Is there mercy for me? Is there mercy for me? Is there mercy for me? God was at work. Well, that meeting continued until four o'clock in the morning. Mr. Campbell, there must be anything between two and three hundred people at the police station. They're gathered there and some are on their knees. Now I can't understand this. Now he, he wasn't in the church, you see. But here a crowd of men and women from a neighboring village. Five and six miles away, were so moved by God that they found themselves moving to the police station because the constable there was a God-fearing and well-saved man. They were there, and this young man begged of me to go along to the police station. I went along, and I shall never, never forget what my ears heard and my eyes saw that morning. Young men were kneeling by the roadside, I think just now with a group of half a dozen. One of them, under the influence of drink, and his old mother kneeling beside him and saying, Oh, Willie, Willie, are you coming at last? Mr. Campbell, something wonderful has happened. Revival has broken out. And Willie today is the parish minister. And from the group of young men, the Lord that night, there are nine in the ministry. For the door and see the crowd appear, eleven o'clock, Matthew, eleven o'clock. I went to the door and there must have been a congregation of between six and seven hundred people gathered around the church. And within a matter of minutes, the church was crowded at a quarter to twelve. Now, where did the people come from? How did they know that a meeting was in progress in the church? Well, I cannot tell you. But I know this from village and hamlet. The people came. Were you to ask some of them today what was it that moved you? They couldn't tell you. Only that they were moved by a power that they could not explain. And the power was such as to give them to understand and see that they were held deserving sinners. And of course, the only place they could think of where they might find help was at the church. 
Now that is a fact that cannot be disputed. God was everything. And because of this awareness of God, the churches were crowded. Crowded. Through the day, right on through the night to five and six o'clock in the morning. In revival, time does not exist. One of the mighty moments in the midst of this great visitation. You know that the drinking house was closed that night. Never been opened since. The men who used to drink there and spend the evening there are now praying in our prayer meeting. It is because they entered into the fullness. Because the cause the people of do is grasp that truth that we can say today, we know practically nothing of backsliding from that greatest movement of years ago. My dear people, did you good folk understand what revival means? Have you a conception of what it means to see God working? The God of miracles! Sovereign, supernatural, moving in the midst of men and hundreds swept into the kingdom. Oh, that we might see it, that we might see I was born in 1947. I mean, you can see how young I am still. And this happened in 1948, two years later. This is just the other day. This is not an ancient revival going back into almost biblical times. This happened in a little island environment with relatively few people. The towns and hamlets had 5,000 people, 10,000 people per village. The whole of the Lewis area probably only had about 100,000 people. And it was a place where revival had broken out before. Duncan Campbell, you remember this morning I said, when revival comes, it's not about an individual man. The individuals get swept aside. It's about God moving sovereignly. Duncan Campbell got so irritated because he was constantly introduced to go and speak at places afterwards as the man who brought revival to Lewis. And he would say, I did not bring revival to Lewis. I just had the privilege of being part of what was God was doing. Let me tell you the story that I've culled together from the different accounts that have been given. There were two old men, ah, sorry, two old women in the 80s. One, I think it was 82, and the other one, 84. One was totally blind. And they were deeply distressed about what was happening in their area. You see, as I said, this was a place where revival had come before. And so folk had built these huge big church buildings, seating 800 or even 1,000, and there was 10 or 20 coming to Sunday services, and no youth. The teenagers weren't anywhere to be seen. They didn't come to church at all. These two dear old ladies were deeply grieved. And so they committed themselves to start praying twice a week. They said, come, we'll go down on our knees and we'll pray for revival to come. The twice a week, by the way, was from 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. the next morning immediately starts to tell you something about the level of commitment that the Holy Spirit starts to well up within the people that he calls 
to pray. In one of these prayer meetings, one of these two ladies saw a vision of the church building where they met. And it was packed to the rafters with youth. And standing in the pulpit was a man that they had never seen before, a stranger to them. And they treasured this in their hearts, but what they did do immediately is they called for the local parish minister. And they said, are you not equally disturbed and moved by the state of our society and by the total dereliction of the church? And he said, yes, he was. And they told him that he should, uh, these were very forceful old ladies, let me tell you, as you hear the story, they really were forceful. They said to him, well, come on, we're praying twice a week. Why don't you get your deacons and pray too in a different location twice a week? So he agreed. So him and six other men started meeting in a barn. You heard reference to it just now. And they started praying at the same time that these two dear ladies were praying in their home. You had seven plus two, nine people praying. Just nine. Fewer than on the fingers on two hands. Six weeks after they started, Carlos, we've been praying seven years, but six weeks after they started, one of the deacons got up in the barn and he read from Psalm 24, Who shall ascend the hill of God? Who shall stand in his holy place? He that has clean hands and a pure heart. And then he turned to the minister and said, Reverend, we are all a bunch of hypocrites. How can we be praying for this when we ourselves are not right with God? And so he stood and he raised his hands to heaven and he prayed this, God, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? And as he said that prayer, he fell to the ground amongst the straw and he went into a total state of unconsciousness for hours. He was struck down by the Holy Spirit. He lay there under the power of the Spirit for hours. At that very moment, God swept through the the parish. Revival started at that moment. This awareness of God started to sweep through the churches and the houses and the communities of the Outer Hebrides. The sisters called the minister again the next day, these forceful old dears. And they now explained the vision. And they said, Reverend, what you've got to do, what you've got to do, my boy, is you've got to get hold of the head office. It was the Church of Scotland head office. And you've got to ask them to send one of their guys to come and lead a series of meetings for just 10 days. Go on. We saw a strange man in the pulpit. It must be the man that, we, that, we, that you need to find. So he immediately contacted the head office and it took about two weeks. And after two weeks, Duncan Campbell arrived in Lewis. The night he arrived, he was collected by the parish priest at the ferry. And the man said to him, Reverend Campbell, I'm sure you must be very tired after your long journey and very hungry, but would you mind if on the way to the lodgings, where I'll give you supper and and nice bed. Would you mind if we just stop and address a small meeting of people at the, at the church building, just so that you can tell them what will be happening and just introduce the ten days of, of meetings that will be taking place? And he said, yes, certainly. They arrived at the building at 9 p.m. When they got there, there were 300 people waiting for him. Not just a little bunch of 
leaders, 300 people were sitting in this church building. Duncan Campbell addressed them, and he records that absolutely nothing happened. So it was like preaching to tombstones. Those all sat. It's like when I preach at my home church. They just <laughs> sat. Nothing happened. He closed the meeting at 10.45. So it's an hour and 45 minutes later. He pronounced the benediction. Now the same young men who had fallen, man who had fallen into a trance in the barn came up and accompanied him to the church door. He said, this way, this way, sir. Just led him up the aisle towards the church door. Halfway there, that same young man stopped and he cried out, God, you can't fail us. God, you can't fail us. You promised to pour out water on the thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. God, you can't fail us. And then they walked on and they got to the door. They swung the doors of that church building open and they saw standing outside around that church a crowd of 600 people. 600. 300 of them were the people that had been in the meeting and they'd walked out they didn't know where to go. They weren't making a noise. They were silent. They were just standing there. What now? They didn't know. They just knew they couldn't go home. One hundred young people you heard earlier had been at a dance. And then the minister having this wonderful jewel and the music playing and all the rest of it happening, God stepped in. And they fled as if they were fleeing from the gates of hell itself. And they rushed to the church. The buildings, the only place they could think to go. Three hundred that had been in there plus another hundred. But 200 other people had been drawn from the surrounding area by the Holy Spirit. So now there was this crowd of about 600. So Duncan Campbell said, well, well we better go back into the building, start the service again. So they all went back into the building. By the time he started, that building that was designed to seat 800 was suddenly packed. Yet another 200 people had rocked up. This is from small communities, folks. This means that villages are being emptied of their people. And they've been drawn by the power of the Holy Spirit to this place. He preached. They sang. They worshipped God. To get to the pulpit, he had to push his way through the people that were crowding the aisle. And some of them were already lying on the floor crying out to God. He records, and you heard that on the, on the clip, that by the time he got to the pulpit, there was a young lady there who had been at the dance, and she was lying behind them. These pulpits are kind of built up things in those old traditional churches. You walk up a few steps, and, and then right, lying right there in the pulpit is this young lady, and she's crying out, Oh God, is there mercy for me? Oh God, is there mercy for me? That meeting continued until 4 a.m. This is his first day, his first night in, in Lewis. Duncan Campbell never did get his supper. And he never did get to go to sleep that night. Interesting thing. Nobody made any altar calls that night. None. But people were getting saved by the hundreds. Left, right, and center. At four in the morning, Duncan Campbell left the meeting and the 800 people are still in there. He just left. Because he said, how can I interfere with what God is doing? 
God was at work. People were getting saved. They were crying out to God. And He was touching their lives. So He just said, well, time to go. And, and off He went. Just as He's leaving, a man rushes up to Him from outside and says, Reverend Campbell, I would like you to go to the police station. There must be at least 400 people gathered at the police station. Now, guess where the police station was located? Right next to the place where the two old ladies lived. Right there. Right next to the center of prayer that had been going on. So he goes down there and he finds that this huge crowd had been drawn by bus from surrounding hamlets. He asked them, what are you doing here? We don't know. We just know that we had to get here. And we didn't know where to go, so we we went to the police station. But by the time he gets there, they're lying by the side of the road. They're crying. They're crying out to God. People are kneeling and just lifting their hands before God and saying, Oh, God, save me. They must imagine that. This is four in the morning, Nochal. No singing at that police station. No preaching. Just God at work. And Duncan Campbell didn't say a word at that police station. He just stood and he observed what God was doing. And so the great revival of the Outer Hebrides of Lewis began that night in 1949. After that day, The church building where they had been meeting was crowded every day and every night. Not just Sundays. Every day. Monday through Saturday through Sunday. Every morning, every afternoon, every night. More and more and more people coming. And Duncan Campbell preached. Every time the place filled up, he preached. And he preached. And he preached the word of God. And ministered to the people. One occasion, he was still at it at 3 a.m. in the morning. And somebody came and said, Reverend Campbell, there's a parish about 30 kilometers away and there's a crowd gathered there and they don't know what to do. Won't you come with me there? <laughs> so he said, sure. Now, I don't know how they, how they traveled, you know, maybe on horseback, maybe on bicycles, I don't know, but he, he, they got there. And when he got there, he found this huge crowd gathered in the field. You see, there was a building there, a church building that actually seated a thousand people. But it was already full. There was no minister there, just a thousand people sitting and waiting. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds out in the fields outside for they couldn't get in. And again, He witnessed God working without human intervention. Just the Spirit of God. That first revival wave lasted for five weeks with that intensity. Day and night for five weeks. Without stop. And then he recalls it lulled just slightly. The temperature went down a little so they could gather their breath. And then it went on and continued for three years. Duncan Campbell had been asked to come for ten days. He stayed for a thousand days before he left. A thousand days of revival. 
One of the features of the Lewis Hebrides revival was that there were no obvious miracles. There were no healings that took place. It was the strangest thing. There have been many revivals, like Azusa, for instance, when great, wonderful miracles took place. Not there. There was no speaking in tongues. But hundreds upon hundreds were slain in the spirit. Now, isn't that a strange thing? Hundreds found themselves just down on the floor, weeping before God under the hand of the Almighty. And thousands, thousands were saved. One of the signs of a true revival is what happens in the years after that. You have some pseudo-revivals that happen and there's a lot of hype and heat. But in the years that after that, the people backslide and they move off and nothing much happens. In the Hebrides, there are still the people living in those villages today serving God. There are many of them that came into full-time ministry. Many of them who went off all over the world from that place and serving Him. And it's so wonderful to watch the video clips of these folk now in their 80s think, saying, thinking back and saying, my life was changed when I was a young person. I was one of the people who went to that dance. And I've served Him passionately ever since. Their passion for Jesus has not waned as the years have gone by. While a meeting was taking place in one village, another great sign of the Hebrides revivals, the power of God would strike another hamlet where no preaching was taking place. Duncan Campbell would be preaching in Lewis and 30 kilometers off suddenly the Holy Spirit sweeps through a village of 5,000 people and every single one of them get touched by the Holy Spirit, whether they were in their bedrooms or at work or whatever it was. Woof! God stepped down and moved through the people, swept through their lives. Fishing boats would pass down the coast and the skipper would say, Let's make land and they would come in and the whole crew would just step off the fishing vessels, these are quite big vessels, and just kneel in the sand and commit their lives to Jesus with nobody preaching to them. For the presence of God was so tangible that it reached out in a, in a circle out in, into the seas and drew these people with a power that was deeply supernatural, a power from heaven the power of the Holy Spirit. Another feature of the Lewis revival that happens in most revivals is that great opposition rose up. There were many ministers in the area who said, this is not of God. When there's a true revival, there will always be those who stand up who say, no, 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 we, we, we don't think this can possibly be. After all, you know, where's all the, where's all the rules and stuff? That's supposed to be obeying. So these guys organized a rally and they brought ministers and people across from the mainland to have a counter-meeting in Lewis to try and squelch God's revival. What did Duncan Campbell do? He just called 30 of the leaders together and said, Come, men and women, come. Into the barn we go. On our knees we go. We're going to pray. They went into a, a area that had this barn and a house attached and they were filling that. And he records that as they were praying, that house started to shake as if there was an earthquake. There was no earthquake recorded. But the whole building started to shake that the cups and saucers rattled on the shelves. 
And when they finished the prayer meeting, now listen to this. This is the most outstanding thing probably of the whole revival. They opened the door for those 30 people to go home and they walked out there and the entire community, everybody in that village, were walking with chairs and stools in their hands in the middle of the night, heading for the church building. The counter-revival meetings down the road, empty. Everybody picked up their chairs and they headed for the church building. And they said, is there room for us? Is there room for us? What a thing, guys. What a thing. Why can't God do that again? Why not? And heaven alone knows we need it so desperately, so badly. The people of the Hebrides long for the visitation to come again. They've, they've, seen, they've tasted it. They want it to happen again. We, we haven't tasted it, but my heart yearns for that. But remember those of you who are here this morning what I said? I said, let me tell you how revival affects us individually and personally. One, it will be emotionally volatile. It's not smooth waters. Our emotions will be deeply and passionately engaged. We will not be able to stand like some folks do in church with our hands in our pockets looking around to see who's come this morning. We'll be passionately involved. Our, Our hearts will swell within us. It'll be messy and spontaneous. And services will continue for hours and hours and hours. And nobody will want to go. And you better bolt the doors, otherwise they'll break them down because hundreds will be coming in as well. It won't be within our control. God will be in control. We will be humbled. For one of the things that happens in revival is our sin surface. And they float to the surface of our consciousness and we look and we see and weep. Oh God, is there mercy for me? So we have to be humble and we have to be transparent because God will work in His people when He comes with revival. It will demand our time and energy. Think back on the Lewis revival that I've just described for you. Morning, afternoon, night, Monday, Wednesday, Saturday, Sunday, next week, week after that. And there's not just one pastor, Pastor Sam, standing here and doing the stuff. It's all of us ministering. Revivals are not one-man bands. They are when the men and women of God are enthused and rise up and minister day after day after day after day. It will be all-consuming, but it will be glorious. And it will save the church. And it will save our nation. And it will touch the nations of the world. Ah, we need revival. Will it be the morning? Yes, but what a small price to pay for God stepping down. Imagine that. I've preached so many times and I've said to folk, can you imagine if Jesus was suddenly visible in the front of our church? 
How would we be? If he preached, would we listen? You better believe it. We would listen. We wouldn't just say, in very, very nice sermon, Jesus. We would listen. If he stood in the front there in, in, in a form that we could see and said, talk to me, my people. We would pray. We wouldn't say, mm, I've got nothing to say, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I don't like to pray in, in public. We would be crying out to him. If he said, come to me, I want to touch your life and heal you, what would we do? We would rush forward. We would rush forward. We would fall at his feet and say, lay your hand upon me, Lord. Wouldn't we? Wouldn't we? Well, that's what happens in revival. Jesus becomes so tangible that these eyes can almost see and these ears certainly can hear. Thick with the presence of God. I want to play one other video. We've got time still, have we? And uh, this is one of my favorite theologians at the moment. His name is Dr. Michael Brown. He's a very, very erudite man, but very practical and down to earth. And he was the theologian that they called into Brownsville. Have you heard of the Brownsville Revival? It lasted for three years in Brownsville, United States. And a genuine revival, a revival of, of great magnitude. And he was called in because they wanted to make sure that they didn't mess it up. So he had first-hand experience. I want you to listen to him, how he sums up revival and how he gives a challenge. And then I want to close by posing those three questions and then open up for a time of prayer together and, and ministry together. So let's roll that, please. For many years, the question has been asked, why is it that we don't see revival? We read about revival in the past. Some of us have experienced outpourings in churches or cities or overseas that have lasted for days or weeks or months or even years. But why don't we see another national great awakening? Why don't we see greater sweeping revival? How come so many of us don't see revival in our own personal lives? For many years, the question is asked, why is it that we don't see revival? Leonard Ravenhill, author of several books, the most classic being Why Revival Tarries, Leonard Ravenhill's answer was always very simple. It's because we're willing to live without it. Let me give you my working definition of revival. Revival is a season of unusual divine visitation resulting in deep repentance, supernatural renewal, and sweeping reformation in the church along with the radical conversion of sinners in the world, often producing moral, social, and even economic change in the local or national communities. For years, I had read about great revival movements. I looked in the Bible, in the Old Testament scriptures, and saw how the nation could be changed and turn to God in repentance and, and how a generation could be shifted. I'd look at the key verses that spoke about this. Habakkuk 3, verse 2. The prayer of Habakkuk when he sees his nation in spiritual and moral decline and knows that God's judgment is due. And what does he pray? Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. Lord, visit us again. To paraphrase, we heard about what you've done in the past, but do it again in our day. And the classic King James, revive your work in the midst of the years. 
I, I look in the New Testament for patterns of revival. By the time we get to the end of the New Testament in the book of Revelation, we see that five of the seven churches are in a backslidden or morally compromised or spiritually compromised position. And Jesus says to each of them, repent or else. And with each, there's a promise of renewal in life. It's a picture. It's a pattern of revival. And then we all read the New Testament. We see what God did through the disciples in the book of Acts. And we say, Lord, where is that power, that glory, that presence today? And I'd read about the Great Awakening in America and the Second Great Awakening. I'd read about the outpouring, the, the great prayer revival that swept the nation in 1857-58. I read about the Welsh Revival and Azusa Street and, and the Hebrides Revival and these different things. And, and then I was part of an outpouring. I was part of an outpouring in 1982-1983 that rocked the local church where we were. God got hold of me. I was an elder in the church, and the fire spread to the congregation, and many people were dramatically changed, some for, for many, many years after that. My own life affected from that time on. And then I had the privilege of serving in the Brownsville Revival. I served there from 96 to, to 2000. The revival began in 1995, and, and I'd been longing. I'd been hungering. <clears throat> I, I had been thirsting for God to move. I had been fasting and praying. Oh, we live every day as disciples, and we're responsible every day as disciples. And we do what we know how to do on a day-to-day -day basis. And yet we know there must be more. We hunger, we cry out, we long, we thirst. It's a scriptural principle. God fills the hungry. God satisfies the thirsty. Jesus was born in the manger because there was no room in the inn. Often God moves in unlikely places because we are so self-satisfied with what we're doing and so distracted with the things of this world and so in love with the things of this world. So I wrote a book, the current title, Time for Holy Fire. I wrote a book that came out in March of 1995. And at the end of that book, I gave a picture of what revival looked like. Here's, here's what I wrote. Remember, the Brownsville Revival broke three months later. Here's what I wrote. Once, while preaching near Buffalo, I visited Niagara Falls together with Jennifer, our older daughter. As we walked along the bank towards the falls, <clears throat> there was a clear, strong tide pulling the waters along. The thought struck me. That is the state of a growing church. It is progressing and moving forward, but that is not revival. Then we got nearer to the falls. The flowing stream had turned into raging rapids. The water was capped with white waves, and the tide was almost violent in its pull. Again, the thought came to mind, this is what most of us today call revival. It's a great increase over the normal state of things. Much more is happening, and it looks really exciting, but it's still not revival. Then we came to the falls. They were absolutely awesome. I'd seen them as a little boy, but the reality was so much more powerful than the memory. They were not just grand and impressive. They were staggering. But I wasn't just content to see the falls. I wanted to experience them. So Jennifer and I joined a group of other interested tourists, rented out some big yellow raincoats, left our shoes in a locker, and went down to the rocks at the base of the falls. The closer we got, the more overwhelming it became. Torrents of water, so much water, crashed like thunder. In a moment, we were soaked. The wind, where did it all come from? Blew so hard it actually took our breath away. We were no longer spectators. We were participants, caught up in the pounding, swirling, churning, flooding display of natural glory. There, in a face-to-face -face encounter with the raw power of God, with the majesty of the Creator exploding all around me, I could only raise my hands and praise Him who lives forever and ever. I was swallowed up 
and the falls. That is a picture of revival. Are you ready? Three months later, revival began in Brownsville. Friends, I'm an eyewitness to people getting online at 6 in the morning to wait 12 hours to get into the service that starts at 7 at night. And then the service going five, six hours, night after night, four or five nights a week, and doing it for several years, people coming from more than 130 nations, hungry, thirsty, desperate, encountering God and being changed, lost sinners getting radically transformed. I'm a witness to hundreds of people, night after night, running to the altar, weeping under conviction, recognizing their sin, and experiencing the grace and love and mercy of God and going out changed. Some of them are on the mission field now, and they've been on the mission field more than 15 years. That's how deep the encounter was. Let let me take you into a service. I was not the main preacher. My friend Steve Hill, the evangelist, was the main preacher, and he would see these incredible results night after night. But but this was in the air. God was moving. It was a season of genuine outpouring and revival. Let me take you into a service. Uh, just get the feel of what happened at one of these altar calls. I want you to get to this altar right now from all over this building. I don't want you to wait for a minute. And when you get down, get on your knees and begin to cry out to God. Begin to lift your voice to God. Begin to lift your voice to God. Come down. Come down from the balcony. Find a place. Get up close. Get up close. Step out. When it gets filled, fill the aisles. Come on. Whoa. I can't let you go. To go until you bless me. This between you and God. This between you and God. This is between you and God. No one else can do it for you. Come on down from the balcony if you're hungry and thirsty. Step out from the pews. That's that's what happens, friends, when people are desperate. Christians who recognize they've been playing games with God, saying, "I've, I've got to get right with God." Backsliders coming back who've been away from God, coming back and getting right with God. First-time converts, bound by all kinds of sins, getting set free, meeting with Jesus. That's why it's so emotional. That's why the cry is so great. And when you read the book of Acts, the people cry out after Peter preaches, what must we do to be saved? America needs awakening. And it starts in the church. But that means it starts with you. That means it starts with me. That means one coal getting bright, getting hot, can set the other coals on fire. Why don't you say, God, make me that coal. Set my own heart ablaze today. Do something fresh in me. Why not take a minute and get alone with God and say, God, awaken your fire afresh in me. Restore me to my first love. I repent of compromised sin, whatever you're conscious of, and ask God to move. If you determine to seek him, what does the scripture say? Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Let revival start with you and with me. It comes down to those three questions I posed this morning for those of you who are here. I believe they're not questions that I'm posing. They're questions which I believe that God is posing to us, His people. So I'm on the same receiving end of those questions as you are. And the three questions are this. Firstly, do you want revival? It is a serious question. I've explained how demanding it is, how wonderful, how glorious, but how all-consuming true revival is. We have to ask the question, do we want it? Because if we don't, if you don't, you're not going to be crying out to God. And if you do, you won't mean it. You'll just be going through some kind of form. 
Question one, therefore, do you, you, do you, do you want revival? The second question is, are you prepared to cry out to God until he comes with revival power? Not just tonight, not just in your quiet time tomorrow morning, but until he comes. If it takes days or weeks or years or decades. If you say, I want revival, then the second question has to be posed. Are you then prepared to ask for it? Knock until the door is opened. Ask until it's given to you. Seek until you find. And the third question which flows out of the first two. Are you prepared to pay the price that revival will demand of you? Do you want revival? Are you prepared to ask consistently and cry out from your heart? And when he comes, are you going to say, Yes, Lord, thank you, here I am, take all of me? Or will you be heading for the hills because it's too demanding? Are you prepared to pay the price? It's a question which only you can answer. That's a serious question. I've had to ask of myself, honestly. This is not something um, that has only come to me over the last few days. I've been wrestling with this for year after year after year. When those prophetic words came to our church to say, God is going to send revival, one of the first questions in my heart was, do I want that? Do I really want that? I'm really happy with the way things are going. The church is growing and the people are coming and the finances are great. Do I really want it? The answer had to be yes. It had to be yes. For unless God comes with a revival, I cannot be transformed and the church cannot rise up and the church cannot reach this nation and the world. And Jesus cannot be restored to his rightful place, right in the center. And so my answer had to be yes. Yes, Lord. The other two questions for me were easier. For I've been trying to live that out for 30 years in, in ministry. So now the question is yours. And for you to respond. So I'm going to pray for you. And we're going to give you an opportunity to respond in some way which is appropriate. But please, rather get glued to a seat than make a response which is not real. God does not honor these things. Don't do something because you think the person next to you might be a little offended if you don't. Or, you know, the pastor's looking at you with half an eye. Rather do nothing. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I ask you in the wonderful and the precious name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, head of this church, head of every church that, had, that may deem to call themselves a church, I ask in the name of Jesus 
blessed, wonderful Spirit of the living God, won't you come even now and move on our hearts so that we can make a genuine response to your challenge, so that we can become men and women who cry out to you from a heart that is rent into, oh God, please send revival. We've heard of your fame. We've heard of what you've done in years gone by. Renew your work in our day. Oh God, please come and touch our hearts in such a way that we can acknowledge and deal with the things that hold us down. And the infirmities and the sins that grip our lives and our insecurities and our pride and our arrogance that we can come before you and say, Oh Lord, sweep all of that away. For I know that when you step in, there's no room for that stuff. You might as well deal with it now. And Lord, won't you speak beyond the words of a human being tonight, deep into our spirits, when we contemplate the question, am I prepared to pay the price that your voice will echo in our hearts? Ah, my daughter, my son, it is such a small price compared to the glory of what you'll be part of. Generations have longed to see the things that I'm about to do. People of old have cried out to me to see and to experience what you will experience. Oh, what a small price, your energy and your time, to see me come in glory. You speak that to us, Lord, please deep into the recesses of our spirits so that we will know it is you who speak and not a mere man. Holy Spirit, please, for the sake of your church, stir our hearts and don't let us go. Cause us to become a people of prayer, a people of action, the people of faith and the people of hope who will not stop knocking on the door of heaven until you swing it open and say, Step out of the way, Sonny. I'm here. <laughs>